Last week, there were several attacks against Ukrainian journalists, and it's there it, it was a pretty big scandal. Even though we don't know who's behind it, it's pretty clear that it's somebody connected to the presidential office. The the phones have been tapped for at least a few months, and all that, all that to discredit the major investigative team. And when you're president of this country that has this history, it is irresponsible of you to you know to to be in a public confrontation with any journalist. Zelensky has to be the champion of free press. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Kyiv Independent dives into Ukraine's biggest events of the week and explains them in just 30 minutes. I'm your host, Masha Lavrova, and today, for the very first time, the Kyiv Independent chief editor, Olga Rudenko, joins us to discuss press freedom in Ukraine in light of the increasingly alarming attacks on Ukrainian journalists in the last several weeks. Welcome to the show, Olga. We're very happy to have you here. I'm very excited to be here for the first time. Before we go on, I would like to remind you guys to subscribe to the Kyiv Independent wherever you're listening to the show. Like us, rate us, and write comments. It will take you only a few seconds, but it really does go a long way for us. Thank you for your support. Thanks to you, we're able to ensure that more people stay informed about the news in Ukraine. Okay, let's begin. Olga, the first question that I have for you Is there press freedom in Ukraine? I mean, I'm sure the war hasn't helped with martial law and with all the other challenges that Ukrainian journalists have faced, but how 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 bad are we doing in that department? Well, it's a it's a great question and not an easy one. I think with press freedom, there is no such thing as a switch that turns it on and off. It's not like you either have it or don't have it. I think we have it, but it's not perfect. We have it to some extent. And usually people are surprised that there is any press freedom in Ukraine during war. But also because Ukraine in general is not famous to, you know, as a country with high level of press freedom, because we have a history of journalists being killed even before the full-scale war and attacked and access to information is limited and so on and so on. But at the same time, we have a very uh, strong tradition of independent journalism, which is very young in Ukraine also, because there was no independent journalism here until the 90s when Ukraine became independent. Because, yeah, as you can guess, uh, during Soviet times, you know, not a big emphasis on the uh, freedom, you know, on, on any freedom, yeah, and, and freedom of journalism too. So, and it, yeah, in that regard, I think we are doing better than could be expected in these circumstances. But at the same time, there were obviously some developments last week that pretty alarming in the department. And it looks like the freedom of press is once again, under a major threat in Ukraine. I know that last week there were several attacks against Ukrainian journalists, and it was a pretty big scandal. Could you take us through that, please? Yeah, sure. So what happened last week? There were two separate things connected indirectly. On Monday, we learned that a prominent investigative journalist had a threatening visit to his home. So what happened was, there's this guy, his name is Yuri Nikolov. And if you follow Ukraine, you may not, you, you may have not heard the name ever, but you definitely know of his work because uh, he is the one who broke that story last year. It was the biggest corruption story of the year in Ukraine was the scandalous overpriced uh, food procurement to one. Actually, first there was food procurement in January for defense ministry, where defense ministry was buying basically a year worth of food supplies for some military units at insanely inflated prices. Some prices were three times what you see in supermarkets. 
And he broke the story and the contract was stopped and it saved Ukraine a bunch of money. But at the same time, it was the biggest, like the first big corruption story in Ukraine since the start of the full-scale war. And it was really, you know, kind of ground shaking. And a lot of people kind of hate him for that, as you can imagine. And then months, months later, he broke a second story about procurement of uniform of jackets for Ukrainian military. Again, it inflated prices through a shady intermediary that didn't have to be there and so on and so on. And well, after the second story, the defense minister had to be uh, resigned, had, had to, well, well replaced. Well, you know, they, they fired them in a polite way. They let them resign. He, he was replaced. We can say that. So that cost the minister his job. And well, what happened was several people, several young men came to his apartment in Kiev and they started banging on the door, insulting him, demanding that he answer the door and uh, shouting things like he should be in the army, that he's dodging the draft and so on and so on. Like, you know, insulting him and, and demanding that he joins the, the military. He wasn't at home, right? He wasn't at home. And to make things worse, the only person who was at home, according to him, was his elderly mother who did not, thank God, answer the door. Uh, that must she, have been terrifying. It must have been. And the important detail is that the video of this happening, filmed from outside the door, so filmed by one of these guys, immediately appeared on an anonymous Telegram channel. And not just any Telegram channel, but one that, even though we don't know who's behind it, it's pretty clear that it's somebody connected to the presidential office because... This Telegram channel always supports all the, you know, talking points of the office and always goes after the enemies of the office, like very, in a very vocal way. And this video just appears there with, you know, some, again, insults against this journalist added to, to the video. And that's it. That's like, you know, the, the, there is a threatening visit and, and a Telegram channel that is connected to the presidential office, apparently, immediately posts the video, which makes you think that they were behind it. That actually was my next question. Do we know who's behind these visits or just this attack in general? That's the thing. We don't know who was behind it, but we might find out because after this became a major scandal several days later, the National Police actually opened the case and surprisingly, they were able to identify, to they say they were able to identify several people who were the perpetrators of this, of this attack. And they did not publish the names, but they published, you know, the blurry images of uh, them being either detained or their homes were searched or something like that. But this is the thing with any attacks against journalists, you know, the whole history of Ukraine, the perpetrators sometimes are found. The people who ordered the attack are usually never found. And if you go back to as far as to the case of Georgi Gangadze, who was very famous Ukrainian journalist who was murdered in the year 2000, so 23 years ago. And in his case, it took many years for the perpetrators to be arrested and, uh, and eventually imprisoned. But we never got to who actually ordered the, the killing. Well, th and that wasn't the only attack against the journalist last week, right? And, he, and exactly. And it's all about how, you know, how they were stacked together. Because the next day after, you know, Monday last week, we are shocked by this thing that happened to Yuri Nikolov. And then the next day, uh, something even worse comes out. So there is this investigative outlet called Bihus Info. It's a strange name because it's named after the founder, Denis Bihus. And they have been around for at least 10 years, I think. And they 
were behind some of the biggest investigations in this 10 years. When there was a presidential election in 2019, and it was uh, then President Petro Poroshenko against the newcomer Volodymyr Zelensky, there was a popular speculation that Poroshenko lost the re-election because of a story that came out in Bihusin 4 a couple months before the election. Wow, that is big. It is. It, I mean, it's not true that he lost because of that. There was a number of reasons, and his popularity was already low. But many saw this as the final kick. So they are a huge deal in Ukraine. And they're pretty popular too. Like, so they are not some small niche outlet. Not at all. And uh, so what happened was a video pops up on YouTube. And it is posted by a, you know, website. It looks like it's a news website. But when you look closer, it's actually just posing as a news website. Because, you know, there is no real, like... Team of journalists. And yeah, I heard that like. the pictures were actually like AI generated. So there's not oh, even actual yes. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a website that poses the news outlet. And it publishes a video on YouTube. Uh, and the video is meant to show that the team members of this investigative outlet are using drugs at their private party. So obviously they can't be trusted because they're drug users. Yeah, the, 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 the purpose of the, the whole idea. thing, the purpose of the whole thing is to show that, you know, the investigations can't be trusted because they, they're high. They, yeah, they, they're high while, while, while all you the know, time. doing the, yeah. the investigations. What's actually in the video is quite concerning. So the team did have a new year, like several days before the, before the new year, they had a, like a new year party for, for the team, um, for which they rented out a few rooms in a hotel near Kiev. And they went, like the whole team went there and like, celebrated the end of a very difficult year. So what happened was the team didn't know that there are hidden cameras in the hotel, in the rooms. And the cameras were apparently installed right before they arrived. Yeah, I read that the administration of that hotel said that all the rooms were rented like a day before. Yeah, so one day before this party that is planned, a man comes in and one person rents all the rooms in the, like books all the rooms in the hotel for one day. Weird. Yeah, I know. And then Something like 30 men, the hotel said that they were acting kind of weirdly, like uh, they were, you know, having dinner and whenever a waiter would approach, they would all, you know, stop speaking and it looked kind of strange. So they all come in for one day and then they leave and then these journalists come in and check into these rooms and they have their celebration and then they leave. And then the next day, a different man, again, books all of the rooms. And then not sort of men this time, but just a few come in and go through all the rooms. And, you know, apparently what happened was they installed the cameras before the journals arrived. And then they had to book the rooms for one day again to take them out. And the hotel thought that it was suspicious, but they, of course, didn't think that they are, they are doing like meddling with cameras and stopping. So let's talk about the video for a second mm -hmm. here. The video is not as scandalous as you can imagine it. So in the video, there is, uh, you can see footage from inside one of the hotel rooms uh, where you can see a, a table and a few people from the, from the team, mainly camera, main, people, main right? camera people, yeah, they are using some drugs. What is also very concerning, that same video also had recordings of their phone calls where they are discussing preparations for the party and they are they're discussing buying these drugs. That means that their phones were tapped. Imagine the effort, you know, 30 people who coming to rent all the rooms in this, in this hotel just to install the cameras. And then they come in after that to take, uh, take the cameras. They look through the footage. They find that one bit where, you know, somebody's using drugs and they're like, bingo, we're going to use that against them. And they add to that the phone conversations. And all that 
all that to discredit the major investigative team that has been active for at least 10 years and that has taken down so many corrupt officials and so on and so on. That's played, it's one of the, it's literally one of the pillars of Ukraine's democracy. This group of people. An anti-corruption movement. An anti-corruption movement, exactly. And this group of people is so essential. And somebody went to great lengths to try to discredit them based on the conversations that were in the video. The, the phones have been tapped for at least a few months. Wow. But yeah, it was actually encouraging to see that people were... Um, Ukrainian societies. The public was actually enraged by the fact of the surveillance. The, and I was watching it, this reaction unroll from like the, the first few hours onwards. And f- from the very beginning, from you know, the moment when there was only like a few dozen comments on this video on YouTube, many comments were like, you know, why, why do we have this video? Why is there this video? Why does it exist? Who, who took that? How was that possible? That's not legal. So people are not commenting on illegal drugs as much as they were commenting on surveillance of journalists. And how problematic and, that is. Yes. And that was actually, you know, that was a good signal. There was, a, you know, a sign of a healthy society that has their focus in the right place. What about, I mean, that brings me to, to a natural question. Have we had other comments? Have we had comments from the government? Have we had comments from Zelensky in the administration about this whole, these two situations? It was a Pretty shocking thing to have these two situations, the, the Australian visit to Nikolov and then this back-to-back, exactly, it was Monday and Tuesday, one week. And when, when, you know, when this happened on Tuesday, everybody was like, what is going on? This, I will back to Viktor Yanukovych's time, so something like that, like, that's how it felt. And it's, it's honestly, it's hard to believe that whoever did that is not trying to sabotage Ukraine, because it is sabotage. It also happened when Zelensky was in Davos. It also happened when he is talking to our foreign partners and, you know, making the case that Ukraine's democracy is ready to enter EU and so on is a pretty big part of the conversation. And press and freedom is a big part it, of it's that. It's a huge part of that. I know for a fact that EU, for example, is watching press freedom in Ukraine closely, make sure that they are not persecuted in any way. And Nikolov is definitely one of those people and Bihuzin Ford definitely among those people. So somebody harmed Ukraine so much by doing that, that it's, you know, it's either extremely stupid. Or, or really well planning, like for discrediting of Ukraine. Yes, it's either extremely stupid or they are just working for Russia. Yeah, this, these two situations, these attacks against independent journalists are not looking good. And while we had really healthy or seemingly really healthy response from Ukrainian society, have we had any response from Zelensky? And the administration. We did. It uh, didn't come in very fast, but I think it was two days after after this happened, or a day and a half after this happened, Zelensky in his daily address, he didn't, I think, mention the people, the journalists by the name or by the name of the media outlet, he, he, but he said that any pressure on journalists, absolutely unacceptable. And I think he mentioned surveillance. I think he said concerning the situations like the surveillance of journalists, it's not, it's absolutely acceptable. So, I mean, we've gotten a response from Zelensky in the administration, but is that enough? Has, you know, journalistic community been satisfied with that? Well, it's good that there was a response. That was definitely, you know, welcome. At the same time, I think uh, if you're working in journalism in Ukraine, you have a memory of how various top officials, including Zelensky, have treated journalists in the past. So you have a memory of many instances of, you know, him snapping at journalists at press conferences or an attack on journalists uh, being unanswered and provoking a reaction, and so on, so on. And when you when you have that background memory of this 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 backlog, 
I think it affects how seriously you can take Zelensky saying that Persian journalists is unacceptable. Unfortunately, it is fair to say that it is his behavior that has prepped the ground for attacks on journalists. Because from the very beginning of his tenure in 2019, he has made it clear that he is not, he is not welcome criticism. There is a history of Zelensky snapping at journalists at press conferences and getting into arguments with them. At one point, he said something like, commenting on some journalist's behavior, he said his parents didn't do a good job raising him, which is kind of personal and in poor taste, you can argue. It's not professional. Like, it's, they're just doing their job. Yeah, but whenever I saw this happen, you know, this, this public confrontation between Zelensky and journalists, I thought this is so irresponsible on his part. Because he needs to remember that he is the president of a country where there is a history of journalists being killed after presidents spoke badly about them. If you go 23 years back, there was President Leonid Kuchma, who apparently hated journalist Georgi Gengadze, who was quite critical of him. In a normal way, in an absolutely normal journalistic way, this journalist was confronting him. And Leonid Kuchma, then president, was talking not knowing that he's been recorded and saying things like, we need to do something about him. We need to do something about the journalist. Next thing that happens, this journalist gets kidnapped and killed by people working for Interior Ministry at the time. It was never proven that it was Lenin Kuchma who ordered the killing. But we can be sure that this journalist was killed because Lenin Kuchma was mad with him. And when you're president of this country that has this history, it is irresponsible of you to, you know, be in a public confrontation with any journalist. Zelensky has to be the champion of free press. He has to take on that role publicly. He may hate them in, in person. He may hate the stories that come out about his allies or, or corruption or something, something. But it is his responsibility to publicly support the freedom of press, and publicly support journalists. And I especially think now. Especially now, especially now. And I think he's not always taken that, that way. He's not even taking this, taking it seriously. Well, this is concerning for many reasons. And as you said, Ukraine is famously not known for being a safe place for journalists and independent journalists and journalists who are critical of the government. You're in journalism through all of these historical moments in Ukraine. You've been in, you've been doing journalism during Yanukovych's lead and during the revolution that got him out during the annexation of Crimea and, you know, all of these things that affected Ukraine greatly. And that's all before the full-scale invasion. So do you think what's happening now, like these attacks against independent journalism, is a rollback to the times of Yanukovych? Because I feel like that's many, that's what I've seen on social media, people suggesting that's like, are we going back to that time? You know, we, we mentioned Yanukovych times because that was, in a sense, the darkest time, because we had a pro-Russian president who was corrupt and who was about to take Ukraine into a close union with Russia. And way away from European Union. Exactly. And that was why people came to the streets and something known as Euromaidan revolution happened and Yanukovych was thrown out. And uh, I think uh, there was a very big expectation that when he was kicked out by Euromaidan revolution, at a great price, by the way, over 100 protesters were killed for that to happen. And, uh, and, and the Russia used the, the moment to start the invasion and annex uh, um, Crimea. Crimea. And uh, I think there was a great expectation that because such a high price was paid, that now we are on a good track and now we're going we're gonna to reform, we're going to end corruption, the, the media is going to be always free and, and untouchable, and we're going to be a strong democracy and so on and so on. And 
you know, some of that was happening. Indeed, we got anti-corruption institutions and we were in many regards, we were on a good track. But every, every government, every president always had at some point arrived at the moment where they started perceiving journalists as enemies. So, for example, for President Petro Poroshenko, that moment came in 2016 when something known as Panama Papers was released. So, Panama Papers was a huge leak of documents from a firm that registers and runs companies in offshore jurisdictions. And it turned out that President Poroshenko in 2014, I think, was the height of the of this initial invasion by Russia was currently busy trying to move some of his assets. Uh, assets offshore. And he said that it was all, you know, just like bureaucracy preparing uh, to sell the assets and so on. They needed to be moved to a different jurisdiction, but it kind of looked pretty bad. And I remember vividly that it started a wave of online attacks against journalists. Like there was a campaign after campaign after campaign that tried to undermine journalism in general. Don't think that that campaign on the Poroshenko Times really succeeded in in undermining journalists. But now we see it kind of starting again, kind of starting again, and it's just frustrating to see that every regime in Ukraine is trying to make journalists their enemies, and every regime is trying to fight journalists. And you know, the journalists are still there. And at least this time, we can see that the society is actually being quite supportive. So it's already not working as well. I mean, I've well, seen... Well, I mean, right now it's a difficult moment for everybody in Ukraine. People are agitated. People are anxious about... Tired. Tired, extremely exhausted. And does it make people more vulnerable to, more susceptible to potential campaigns that are trying to push this narrative or that narrative? For example, the narrative that journalists can be trusted? We'll have to see. Ukraine has been incredibly lucky to have strong independent journalists throughout all this time, throughout all of these challenges from the government. But now we also are coming into the third year of full-scale invasion and there is martial law and there is also like ethical questions of reporting on different stories. And I mean, obviously, emotionally, it's been a really challenging time, not only physically threatening, you know, but how has the invasion and full-scale war affected journalism in Ukraine? So I've been saying, and I know not everybody agrees, but I've been saying that um, as, as horrible as the physical threats of the war are, in the long term, if you think about the, think about journalism as a field, as a profession in Ukraine, the, maybe the biggest long-term threat to it is the effects that self-censorship can have on it. And, you know, I've been, uh, I've been working in journalism for, I mean, if you count my first job, maybe 14 years, something like that. And uh, up until the full-scale invasion, I don't remember there ever being the understanding that there are stories that can be touched. So I just see my colleagues, not at the Kiev Independent, but at other publications, sometimes struggle with what they can write about if, if they know that this is happening and it deserves coverage, but at the same time, the story can make, you know, um, to simplify it, make Ukraine look bad. For example, I think there hasn't been enough coverage of the issues connected with mobilization in Ukraine. Mobilization is a very, um, like this is the topic in Ukraine now. This is something that people talk about in their kitchens all the time, all the time. And it's a very challenging topic because there's and no it's a right very answer. Challenging one. Well, 
Or at least it doesn't seem it's like not, there it's is. It's not up to us to find the right answer, but we need to, if it is something that people talk about all the time, we need to cover that. And what well, we did, we did, we did a story about it, but I think there is a- Yeah, by Francis. Yes, by Francis. It uh, came out a couple of days ago. So it's a good story, read it. But I think in general, in Ukrainian media, there is very little coverage of mobilization on the level of, you know, people who are afraid, people who are trying to, to evade it, uh, people who are trying to flee Ukraine on that. This is, this is a huge thing that is happening. I mean, it would make sense that, you know, Ukrainians don't want to disrupt that image of these brave Ukrainian people who are going to die for their country, who are willing to lay their lives but for the, the freedom. But the, the, the truth is much more, you know, nuanced, nuanced and three-dimensional. It's not, it's not this, you know, the people who are defending Ukraine in the trenches who are fighting now, they're not all, you know, the, their story is not a story of a fearless soldier who is happy to die for, for his motherland. It's a story of somebody who's making a difficult choice, who has fears, who has family at home, who is afraid that he's not going to see his daughter ever again. And he's still making the choice to be there and fight. And he's, you know, he's nuanced. It's difficult. It's not all, black you know, and heroic and black and white. And, but that makes it stronger. That actually makes the story stronger, the story of Ukraine stronger. It's not, it's not two-dimensional. It's not, it's not like that. But to cover all that means to touch upon the things like, you know, some people don't want to fight. Some people don't want to die. Some people are scared. Uh, scared and they have the right to be scared. It's part of the story. It's all part of the story. And then there is a whole issue of, you know, the, the draft offices sometimes behaving in a crazy way and like grabbing people off the street. That's happening. And there are videos of that happening. But we also seen that happen in Russia a year ago. And there is so much concern of like, we don't want to look at Russia. We don't want to, you know, show that something that happened there and we all like made fun of that and so on. Something like that is sometimes happening in Ukraine now. And, and there is, that's when self-censorship kicks in for journalists. Like they, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe I want to do a different story today. Maybe today I'm going to work on something, something about like this and that, and, but not about this. I mean, and it's that, scary to receive negative, like negative feedback from the readers. I mean, I've recently, when I've made, we've made a video for TikTok about the protest for the money for Ukrainian armed forces. Somebody mm -hmm. actually wrote down, a Ukrainian wrote down in the comments saying, why are you releasing this in English? This makes us look really bad. This tells people about corruption in Ukraine. And I'm like, that's why we need to be talking about it. This yeah. way people are fighting the corruption. From the beginning of full-scale invasion, we had a lot less, you know, corruption scandals and stories. And because everybody was focused on the invasion, on the war and learning how to report on that and just to live in that environment. And now that people and journalists got more used to this horrible reality, now there's more stories coming out with mm -hmm. corruption and things. So do you think it's okay to be reporting on corruption, to be reporting on those uncomfortable stories and showing Ukraine not in an idealized way during the war, even though it might not look great from outside perspective? I think it's not just okay. It's the, the only right thing to do. Just to set the timeline right. So when the full-scale invasion started in February 2022, for the first, I think it's fair to say, for the first six months or so, Ukrainian journalism was in a state where we were not really performing our, you know, watchdog function as like we, what we used to, because we were, we were focused on the invasion, the Russians, the war crimes they're conducting and so on and so on. It was all, there was a feeling that we are in this, this moment where, where we're not certain that we're going to, we're going to survive. And then when, uh, you know, a few months passed and I think it is 
I would say that September 2022 is when things were back to normal in the sense of stories started to come out about corruption, about some misconduct and misdeeds, Ukrainian officials and so on and so on. We at the Kiev Independent were, I think, the first to publish a story about misconduct in Ukrainian military. In August 2022, we did a story about international legion that pointed out some misconduct. How was that received? It was received very well by the public, but publishing it at the time was a big decision for us because, well, you know, we didn't know if we were, would be persecuted or labeled traitors or so on. So on. we didn't know what kind of response we would get. And uh, it was a, you know, major decision to do, but I think it was very important because it's kind of the way I perceive it, it crystallized the values of the Kiev independent. As you said, everybody's been affected by the invasion. Everybody's been affected by, you know, freedom of press or the lack thereof of Ukraine historically. Has KI been affected in the, you know, the existence of Kiev independent? So I think um, we do suffer from the same limitations as other Ukrainian media outlets. For example, getting access to the front line to cover it is very challenging. And whenever you see a story in the Kiev Independent that is from the front line, that is coming from a journalist who was embedded with, with a unit, you know that behind that there is tremendous amount of work. You know, days and days and days of uh, negotiations and the work and many, many phone calls and text messages to, to try to negotiate this access. And then, you know, you come and you risk your life in a major way to, to be there for at least a few hours with those people. But it's difficult to even get there. I think when people read the stories, when they think that, well, you know, the, the journalist is so brave to be there and that's what they mainly focus on. But the journalist, if you ask them, they would probably say that the more challenging part of the work was Just to get there. there. Because unfortunately the, unfortunately, the government is trying to, has been trying consistently to limit access to the front line. So it's very hard, but... I think we are doing a very good job staying immune to self-censorship. I think in that regard, we are very successful. I think we are. We have faced, we have experienced some undue attention from some Ukrainian law enforcement agencies who seem to be very eager to make it clear to us that they are watching what we do and not extremely happy with our coverage. And then they're not too far. And then they're not too far and, uh, and that they are, they are powerful. Well, when you think about it, if you're a journalist uh, in any country, but I think especially in Ukraine, you are always outpowered, if that's the word. And the balance of power is so not in our favor. We are doing something that is very annoying to the people who are much more powerful than we are. It's true for any country, but it's especially true in Ukraine during March And it's something that is always hanging above our heads. And, uh, well, I mean, we are continuing to do what we do because uh, we believe that this story of Ukraine needs to be told without sugarcoating. We think that we sincerely believe that we're doing Ukraine a great favor by that, that we are helping the country that, that we love by telling the truth about it. Okay, now we're going to move on to the question from our community. Olga, the question that our community has for you, how will you ensure that you do not unwillingly harm the war effort with information that could benefit Putin's war? Oh, it's a great question. We indeed need to, especially when we report from the front lines, we need to make sure we don't accidentally disclose something that, doesn't, that shouldn't be disclosed. For example, location or sometimes soldiers would talk about the, the future plans or strategy for a certain thing. 
And we, we cut that out. When we are posting imagery, we need to make sure that the metadata on the, on the images is wiped out. There is nothing that can disclose the coordinates. And there are things like that. There are things like uh, when Kiev is hit by missiles or drones, so there is uh, limitations on what we can show and when we can report it. Uh, that are meant to, you know, Pr- protect, protect limit limit how how fast Russians can learn about the effects of their of their attack. and course correct yes and, and correct yes and and we are carefully sticking to that because when it comes to real defense related issues like positions of the military missile attacks and things like that there you accept certain limitations. Olga, thank you so much for being with us. This was really important topic that we've discussed here, and I'm really grateful that you had time to join us. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. You can find the show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to like, comment, and leave reviews wherever you're listening to it. Also, follow the Kiev Independence so you never miss a new episode. Consider supporting us by becoming a member of our community. It is pretty easy to do. You can do that at kievindependent.com membership. And also support us by following us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. Thank you for listening. <laughs>